0: Welcome to Volume Two of The Shadow Out of Time, Chapter Three. As I have said, it was not immediately that these wild visions began to hold their terrifying quality. Certainly, many persons have dreamed intrinsically strange things, compounded of unrelated scraps of daily life, pictures and reading and arranged in fantastically novel forms by the unchecked caprices of sleep. For some time, I accepted the visions as natural, even though I had never before been an extravagant dreamer. Many of the vague anomalies, I argued, must come from trivial sources too numerous to track. While others seemed to reflect a common textbook knowledge of the plants and other conditions of the primitive world of 150 million years ago, the world of the Permian or Triassic Age. In the course of some months, however, the element of terror did figure with accumulating force. This was when the dreams began so unfailingly to have the aspect of memories and when my mind began to link them with my growing abstract disturbances. The feeling of mnemonic restraint, the curious impressions regarding time and sense of a loathsome exchange with my secondary personality of 1908-13, through and considerably later, the inexplicable loathing of my own person, As certain definite details began to enter the dreams, their horror increased a thousandfold, until by October 1915, I felt I must do something. It was then I began an intensive study of other cases of amnesia and visions, feeling I might thereby objectivize my trouble and shake clear of its emotional grip. However... As before mentioned, the result was at first almost exactly the opposite. It disturbed me vastly to find that my dreams had been so closely duplicated, especially since some of the accounts were too early to admit of any geological knowledge, and therefore of any idea of primitive landscapes on the subject's part. What is more, many of these accounts supplied very horrible details and explanations in connection with the visions of great buildings and jungle gardens and other things. The actual sights and vague impressions were bad enough, but what was hinted or asserted by some of the other dreamers savored of madness and blasphemy. Worst of all, my own pseudo-memory was aroused to milder dreams and hints of coming revelations. And yet most doctors deem my course, on the whole, an advisable one. I studied psychology systematically, and under the prevailing stimulus, my son Wingate did the same, his studies leading eventually to his present professorship. In 1917 and 1918, I took special courses at Miskatonic, Meanwhile, my examination of medical, historical, and anthropological records became indefatigable, involving travels to distant libraries and finally including even a reading of the hideous books of forbidden elder lore in which my secondary personality had been so disturbingly interested. Some of the latter were the actual copies I had consulted in my altered state, and I was greatly disturbed by certain marginal notations and ostensible corrections of the hideous text in a script, an idiom which somehow seemed oddly unhuman. These markings were mostly in the respective language of the various books, all of which the writer seemed to know with equal, though obviously academic, facility. One note appended to von Just's, Unausprechlichen Kulten, however, was alarmingly otherwise. It consisted of certain curvilinear hieroglyphs in the same ink as that of the German corrections, but following no recognized human pattern. And these hieroglyphs were closely and unmistakably akin to the characters constantly met with in my dreams, characters whose meaning I would sometimes momentarily fancy I knew or was just on the brink of recalling. To complete my black confusion, my librarians assured me that in view of previous examinations and records of consultation of the volumes in question, all of these notations must have been made by myself in my secondary state. This, despite the fact that I was and still am ignorant of three of the languages involved in these texts. Piecing together the scattered records, ancient and modern, anthropological and medical, I found a fairly consistent mixture of myth and hallucination whose scope and wildness left me utterly dazed. Only one thing consoled me, the fact that the myths were of such early existence. What lost knowledge could have brought pictures of the Paleozoic or Mesozoic landscape into these primitive fables, I could not even guess. But the pictures had been there. Thus, a basis existed for the formation of a fixed type of delusion. Cases of amnesia no doubt created the general myth pattern, but afterwards the fanciful accretions of the myths must have reacted on amnesia sufferers and colored their pseudo-memories. I myself had read and heard all the early tales during my memory lapse. My quest had amply proved that. Was it not natural then for my subsequent dreams and emotional impressions to become colored and molded by what my memory subtly held over from my secondary state? A few of the myths had significant connections with other cloudy legends of the pre-human world, especially those Hindu tales involving stupefying gulfs of time and forming part of the lore of modern theosophists. Primal myth and modern delusion joined in their assumption that mankind is only one, perhaps the least, of the highly evolved and dominant races of this planet's long and largely unknown career. Things of inconceivable shape, they implied, had reared towers to the sky and delved into every secret of nature before the first amphibian forebear of man had crawled out of the hot sea 300 million years ago. Some had come down from the stars, a few were as old as the cosmos itself. Others had arisen swiftly from Terran germs as far behind the first germs of our life cycle as those germs are behind ourselves. Spans of thousands of millions of years and linkages to other galaxies and universes were freely spoken of. Indeed, there was no such thing as time in its humanly accepted sense. But most of the tales and impressions concerned a relatively late race of a queer and intricate shape resembling no life-form known to science, which had lived till only fifty million years before the advent of man. This, they indicated, was the greatest race of all, because it alone had conquered the secret of time." It had learned all things that ever were known or ever would be known on earth, through the power of its keener minds to project themselves into the past and future, even through gulfs of millions of years, and study the lore of every race and age. From the accomplishments of this race arose all legends of prophets, including those in human mythology. In its vast libraries were volumes of texts and pictures holding the whole of the Earth's histories and descriptions of every species that had ever been or ever would be, with full records of their arts, their achievements, their languages, and their psychologies. With this eon-embracing knowledge, the great race chose from every era and life-form such thoughts arts and processes as might suit its own nature and situation. Knowledge of the past, secured through a kind of mind-casting outside the recognized senses, was harder to glean the knowledge of the future. In the latter case, the course was easier and more material. With suitable mechanical aid, a mind would project itself forward in time, feeling its dim, extrasensory way until it approached the desired period. Then, after preliminary trials, it would seize on the best discoverable representative of the highest of that period's life forms. It would enter the organism's brain and set up therein its own vibrations, while the displaced mind would strike back to the period of the displacer remaining in the latter's body till a reverse process could be set up. The projected mind and the body of the organism of the future would then pose as a member of the race whose outward form at war, learning as quickly as possible all that could be learned of the chosen age and its massed information and techniques. Meanwhile, the displaced mind thrown back to the displacer's age and body, would be carefully guarded. It would be kept from harming the body it occupied and would be drained of all its knowledge by trained questioners. Often, it could be questioned in its own language when previous quests into the future had brought back records of that language. If the mind came from a body whose language the great race could not physically reproduce, Clever machines would be made, on which the alien speech could be played as on a musical instrument. The great race's members were immense rugose cones, ten feet high, with head and other organs attached to foot-thick, distendable limbs spreading from the apices, They spoke by the clicking or scraping of huge paws or claws attached to the end of two of their four limbs, and walked by the expansion and contraction of a viscous layer attached to their vast ten foot bases. When the captives' minds, amazement, and resentment had worn off, and when, assuming that it came from a body vastly different from the great races, it had lost its horror of its unfamiliar temporary form. It was permitted to study its new environment and experience a wonder and wisdom approximating that of its displacer. With suitable precautions and in exchange for suitable services, it was allowed to rove all over the habitable world in Titan airships or on the huge boat-like atomic-engined vehicles which traversed the great roads and it delved freely into the libraries containing the records of the planets past and future. This reconciled many captive minds to their lot, since none were other than keen, and to such minds the unveiling of hidden mysteries of earth-closed chapters of inconceivable pasts and dizzying vortices of future times which include the years ahead of their own, despite the abysmal horrors often unveiled, the supreme experience of life. Now and then certain captives were permitted to meet other captives, seized from the future, to exchange thoughts with consciousnesses living a hundred, or a thousand, or a million years before or after their own ages. All were urged to write copiously, in their own language of themselves and their respective periods such documents to be filled in the great central archives. It may be added that there was one special type of captive whose privileges were far greater than those of the majority. These were the dying permanent exiles whose bodies in the future had been seized by keen-minded members of the great race who faced with death sought to escape mental extinction. Such melancholy exiles were not as common as might be expected. Since the longevity of the great race lessened its love of life, especially among those superior minds capable of projection. From cases of the permanent projection of elder minds arose many of those lasting changes of personality noticed in later history including mankind's. As for the ordinary cases of exploration, when the displacing mind had learned what it wished in the future, it would build an apparatus like that which had started its flight and reverse the process of projection. Once more it would be in its own body in its own age, while the lately captive mind would return to that body of the future to which it properly belonged. Only when one or the other of the bodies had died during the exchange was this restoration impossible. In such cases, of course, the exploring mind had, like those of the death escapers, to live out an alien-bodied existence in the future, or else the captive mind, like the dying permanent exiles, had to end its days in the form and past age of the great race. This fate was the least horrible when the captive mind was also of the great race, a not infrequent occurrence, since in all its periods that race was intensely concerned with its own future. The number of dying permanent exiles of the great race was very slight, largely because of the tremendous penalties attached to displacements of future great race minds by the moribund. Through projection, arrangements were made to inflict these penalties on the offending minds in their new future bodies, and sometimes forced re-exchanges were effected. Complex cases of the displacement of exploring or already captive minds by minds in various regions of the past had been known and carefully rectified in every age since the discovery of mind projection, A minute but well-recognized element of the population consisted of great race minds from past ages, sojourning for a longer or shorter period. When a captive mind of alien origin was returned to its own body in the future, it was purged by an intricate mechanical hypnosis of all it had learned in the great race's age, This because of certain troublesome consequences inherent in the general carrying forward of knowledge in large quantities. The few existing instances of clear transmission had caused, and would cause at known future times, great disasters. And it was largely in consequence of two cases of this kind, said of the old myths, that mankind had learned what it had concerning the great race. Of all things surviving physically and directly from that eon-distant world, there remained only certain ruins of great stones in far places and under the sea and parts of the text of the frightful Pancotic manuscripts. Thus, the returning mind reached its own age with only the faintest and most fragmentary visions of what it had undergone since its seizure, All memories that could be eradicated were eradicated, so that in most cases only a dream-shadowed blank stretched back to the time of the first exchange. Some minds recalled more than others, and the chance joining of memories had at rare times brought hints of the forbidden past to future ages. There probably never was a time when groups or cults did not secretly cherish certain of these hints, In the Necronomicon, the presence of such a cult among human beings was suggested, a cult that sometimes gave aid to minds voyaging down the eons from the days of the great race. And meanwhile, the great race itself waxed well-nigh omniscient and turned to the task of setting up exchanges with the minds of other planets and of exploring their pasts and futures. It sought likewise to fathom the past years and the origin of that black, eon-dead orb in far space whence its own mental heritage had come. For the mind of the great race was older than its bodily form. The being of a dying elder world, wise with the ultimate secrets, had looked ahead for a new world and species wherein they might have long life and had sent their minds en mass into the future race best adapted to house them, the cone-shaped beings that peopled our earth a billion years ago. Thus the great race came to be, while the myriad minds sent backwards were left to die in the horror of strange shapes. Later the race would again face death, yet would live through another, forward migration of its best minds into the bodies of others who had a longer physical span ahead of them. Such was the background of intertwined legend and hallucination. When, around 1920, I had my researches in coherent shape, I felt a slight lessening of the tension which their earlier stages had increased. After all, and in spite of the fancies prompted by blind emotions, were not most of my phenomenon readily explainable? Any chance might have turned my mind to dark studies during the amnesia, and then I read the forbidden legends and met the members of ancient and ill-regarded cults. That plainly supplied the material for the dreams and disturbed feelings which came to me after my return of memory. As for the marginal notes and the dream hieroglyphs and languages unknown to me, but laid at my door by librarians, I might easily have picked up a smattering of the tongues during my secondary state, while the hieroglyphs were doubtless coined by my fancy from descriptions in old legends, and afterwards woven into my dreams. I tried to verify certain points through conversation with known cult leaders, but never succeeded in establishing the right connections. At times the parallelism of so many cases in so many distant ages continued to worry me as it had at first, but on the other hand I reflected that the excitant folklore was undoubtedly more universal in the past than in the present. Probably all the other victims whose cases were like mine had had a long and familiar knowledge of the tales I had learned only when in my secondary state. When these victims had lost their memory, they had associated themselves with the creatures of their household myths, the fabulous invaders supposed to displace men's minds, and had thus embarked upon quests for knowledge which they thought they could take back to a fanciful non-human past. Then, when their memory returned, they reversed the associative process and thought of themselves as the former captive minds instead of as the displacer. Hence, the dreams and pseudo-memories followed the conventional myth pattern. Despite the seeming cumbrousness of these explanations, they came finally to supersede all others in my mind largely because of the greater weakness of any rival theory, and a substantial number of eminent psychologists and anthropologists gradually agreed with me. The more I reflected, the more convincing did my reasoning seem, till in the end I had a really effective bulwark against the visions and impressions which still assailed me. Suppose I did see strange things at night, These were only what I had heard and read of. Suppose I did have odd loathings and perspectives and pseudo-memories. These, too, were only echoes of myths absorbed in my secondary state. Nothing that I might dream, nothing that I might feel, could be of any actual significance. Fortified by this philosophy, I greatly improved in nervous equilibrium even though the visions, rather than the abstract impressions, steadily became more frequent and more disturbingly detailed. In 1922, I felt able to undertake regular work again and put my newly gained knowledge to practical use by accepting an instructorship in psychology at the university. My old chair of political economy had long been adequately filled, besides which, Methods of teaching economics had changed considerably since my heyday. My son was at this time just entering on the postgraduate studies, leading to his recent professorship, and we worked together a great deal.